Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Does an executive leader need to drink the company Kool-Aid and believe the PR spin in order to lead? And what if you don't? What if your core values are severely tested by your organisation's actions or if you're a bureaucrat by your government's policies? Well, if you're Trish Bergen, you dig deep, really deep, into your toolkit of exceptional leadership skills. by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. This is episode six of our series looking at new leadership, a style of feminised leadership that we've seen highlighted during the coronavirus crisis in stark contrast to the struggles of the world's strongman leaders. In a moment, I'll introduce you to the extraordinary story of Trish Bergen. But first, I just want to say thanks to you. Thanks for joining me in this podcast journey. I really hope you're enjoying the series and I'd love to hear from you as to what or who you've enjoyed listening to most and why. The best way to connect with us on Broad Talk is to take a virtual seat at our Broad Talk Roundtable on Facebook. We've had some great discussions in that Facebook group on the topics we've covered and the ones you want to hear about. So join the gang on Facebook to connect with me and your fellow listeners. You can find us there as Broad Talk, all one word. And don't forget to hit subscribe on your favourite pod platform so you don't miss an episode. While you're there, if you're feeling encouraging and warm, please leave us a review because that really helps us get the word out about this series. 
Now, let me introduce Trish Bergen. Trish's expertise as an economist saw her rise to prominence early. As a new mother, she flew to Washington, D.C. to become the first woman to head up the Department of Finance office at the Australian Embassy. With a talent for behavioural economics, she went on to forge a stellar career with numerous leadership positions in both the public and private sector. And a disclaimer here, I've known Trish for some time. In fact, I interviewed her for her current job as director at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation, which I founded at the University of Canberra. From the moment she was appointed head of the Office for Women in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet back in 2017, I'd had my eye on Trish. Because of her reputation as a fantastic leader, a gender equality advocate, a super smart bureaucrat, and a lovely person to boot. But as you'll hear in this episode of Broad Talk, Trish has a pretty amazing backstory, which I didn't know about at all. So this discussion actually gets quite personal at times as she opens up about the poverty she experienced as a child. But perhaps most revealing is how Trish handled the crushing experience of being forced to defend the indefensible, including government failures on gender equality. As a woman who's strongly values-driven, Trisha's rich experience has forced her to think long and hard about the role and responsibility of leaders and the power of influence. It's a delight to be joined today by Trish Bergen. Trish, welcome. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here. Trish, I want to jump straight into the issue of leadership. And this is something I know that you and I have talked about many, many times in, in various formats. But before I do, I also uh, want to just get some clarity around what do you think leadership is? Oh, such a big question. And one, I think when you ponder it on a, I don't know, daily, weekly, annual basis, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to... As we do. To, as we do. Um, <laughs> a you, daily basis, I mean. so yes. many facets to leadership. But to me, when you boil it all down, it really comes down to basically leadership is about change and facilitating change. It's about uh, having a a vision for what needs to be done. Sometimes it's not a palatable thing that needs to be done, but it needs to be done. And you can tell that uh, the broader good is served by it, either within an office, a team, um, an organisation, or, you know, at a a national or community level. It's, It's having that vision for change and for reform to make things better. And I guess the elements that really strike me when I think about good leaders and great leaders are those that that think about that uh, that leadership function in terms of being able to describe that uh, that that vision what what's needed to get there mm. is able to listen to really uh, listen to advice take advice bring the right people together and and to make decisions uh, in in a timely fashion but then it's also about the the whole emotional intelligence side too and that's understanding mm. that we as human beings don't really like change even when change can be you know a objectively in in our favour or um, a good thing uh, for the future, just changing and disrupting our pattern 
emotions as we uh, on a day-to-day basis can can really annoy us. So well, it's almost like sometimes we've got a bit of a default mechanism within us as human beings that in fact we resist change. Oh, don't we? we do absolutely. Um, there are many many studies into human nature that just show that we don't like it. We don't like change, and uh, you know you can see it at every level from. A new road that's going to going to save uh, time and improve flow of traffic and things like that will necessarily have some disruption. And often people just resist and say, "No, nope, we don't want that road because mm. it's you know it's just going to be be changed." Mm. And I think I think that's the the case at uh, at significant uh, national policy levels as well. Uh, people really look at things and say, "Yes, we want a better society. We want a, a fairer society, a more equal society." But uh, getting there, the road to getting there and the the pathway that might involve some wins and some losses for each of us Mm. uh, seen as being really, you know, too too big a hurdle to to cross. So that's the leader's job. We we were both listening to the the trailer for a a film um, recently that was run in the Sydney Film Festival. Uh, on leadership, mm. where one of the main players actually made a really good point when she said, leadership is easy when things are good. The ultimate test is can you do it effectively when things aren't good? Oh, and absolutely. that reminded me, yeah, and it reminded me personally of how, I know, how easy it is when despite being in a leadership position where people are looking at you for guidance, when the going gets really tough, sometimes I've just thought, nah, I'm out of here. Mm. You know, it's too hard. I I, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Um, It's hard. It's really hard to sort of G yourself up. You've no doubt, in fact, I'm sure in your extraordinary leadership career, you've had that experience a number of times. What's what's pushed you forward when you really wanted to say, okay, I don't need this, I'm going? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, I think it's, um, it's that absolute adherence to the goal that you're trying to to achieve it's really that strong commitment that if if not you who um, I often remember uh, in my, some of my first leadership roles where, you know, you have to have lots of lots of tough conversations uh, as a leader. You have to have conversations with external stakeholders. You have to have tough conversations with staff sometimes, team members, even your boss. Sometimes you have to have some really tough conversations. And I, I had some really good advice that, that uh, uh, someone gave me very early on that said, once you're pretty much a, a leader of a big team, then if it's not you, then who is going to be, you know, sticking to that uh, either the um, the values of an organisation, you know, the points at which you won't go past them, or whether it's just absolutely being committed that uh, something that is tough is difficult to do. But it has to be done, and uh, you mm. you just have to give it your all. But I do know what you mean about it. It's a, it can be an incredibly lonely experience sometimes, when even sometimes your loyal team members look at you and th- think, you know, surely aren't we done? This isn't going to work, mm. and you have to be the one that says. Come on, once more into the breach. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that that point of loneliness. I must say, as a, a long-time observer of politics f- from the position of a journalist mm. and politically, uh, but particularly close to politics, I have often had a sense that those at the highest level of leadership often are pretty lonely people. Absolutely. Uh, 
and I sometimes wonder: is it necessary to to hold yourself a, a little bit not above, but aside from others? Is loneliness part of leadership? Yes, I think it 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 is sometimes part of leadership because there are going to be times I think when you especially when you're in a not in the wonderful position that I'm in being co-director with uh, the wonderful Kim Rubenstein when you are the leader there are times when you are the only one that can uh, continue a course of action and make decisions and it maybe it may maybe it be it might be a decision to stop or change track or and there'll be a lot of people even within your organization that will say to you no that's not the right thing to do and and you you listen you listen you listen but there are times when you just have to say no I'm sorry we we are going this way and that's I think for me those have been the the loneliest times where where almost everybody <laughs> has said I'll give up or no don't go that way or or just keep it the way it is um and you know that's that's where you have to have long walks and chats to mentors about you know am I mad <laughs> but um <laughs> <laughs> why am I doing this why am I doing I, this I must admit I, I I have thought that a number of times and I've interviewed various uh, senior people particularly in the Australian public service actually um when they've told me some pretty horrible stories about the loneliness that they've experienced. And one in particular, and I obviously won't name who the person is, but mm. they told me that uh, that they would arrive at work, park in their, their privileged car park spot and sit gripping the steering wheel for several minutes before getting out of the car each morning to sort of brace themselves before they went inside. And this was during a particularly difficult period when there was some major, major policy work going on. And I remember thinking, why would you do that? <laughs> why, why not just stay home and grow the roses? I mean, really? Um, but, yeah, look, is it something that just infects some people more than others? I mean, you, you yourself have had a, a very, very strong and solid career um, through both public service and private enterprise, but you've taken up a number of leadership positions and, and some pretty jolly tough ones too, might I add. I mean, it, do you think that it is something about you yourself, your own personality that has made you hang in there and, and want to take on these leadership roles? Oh, definitely. Um, I've thought long and hard about this. Uh, <laughs> as you say, some sometimes I think, why why wasn't I just happy to, I don't know, um, do something that, that really isn't in the cut and thrust of policy or uh, even in business or, you know, a lot of those sorts of areas. And I think I think there is something in us that is drawn to drawn to tough tough gigs I think or challenging gigs they don't necessarily have to be super tough but or tough in and of themselves but but challenging you want something that um, you will be able to stand back from and and feel like oh I've done that I've I've put a brick in that wall um, I've made that mm. better and 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, from days when I um, was in the public service the, the first time around and I decided I wanted to go to the Department of Finance and everybody said, you're mad, you're mad. They work, you know, ridiculous hours over the budget. It's crazy. Um, it's a very male-dominated area, goodness me. But uh, it was somewhere that I wanted to go because I wanted to experience that um, that cut and thrust and the, the real, I suppose, the the... Yeah, I guess I was drawn to to how power was used and uh, how to use that effectively in the pursuit of policy goals, which, yeah, but it, there was an innate drive. <laughs> I want to understand that innate drive a little bit. And we'll come back to your role, particularly with the Department of Finance, particularly when you you know were representing Australia in, in Washington. But let's just unpack that a little bit. Going back to your early years... I'm interested to know what your life was like as a a kid growing up, um, young Trish, (laughs) and what it was that kind of stung you about achieving Mm. and and fed you with the the arrow of ambition. Mm. What do you think it was? Um, Well, I I guess um, really I I would put it down to down to my upbringing. I had a single mother. My grandmother lived with us. Uh, We left uh, my father in Brisbane, literally um, in the middle of oh well, middle of the afternoon when he was uh, at the pub. Filled everything uh, we could get into my grandmother's um, 1959 VW and headed off out of Brisbane. Why? Why were you doing that? Why? Uh, because that was before that was before no fault divorce um, and all of that sort of thing. So there was no other way she could leave him, and he was um, he was uh, a terrible alcoholic. Um, he we were dirt poor because he drank and didn't work, and she worked as much as she could, but in those days didn't didn't uh, earn much at all as a as a young uh, secretary. And so, yeah, she just said, I just can't do this anymore. So she and my grandmother packed myself and my sister and uh, a dog <laughs> into this car mm-hmm. and we just took off and basically... Trish, how old were you then? Six. Yep. Six years old. Yeah. That must have been um, pretty, a, a, a pretty frightening yeah. time, wasn't it? Yes and no. I mean, uh, life at home had been incredibly, well, what's the words, uh, not non-traditional in a lot of ways, uh, just just because of whom you know my my father's um, condition, so very uh, unpredictable, I would say. So jumping in the car, and my grandmother had always told me, so I'm very, I was very close to my grandmother. She had always told me, um, Ducky, when my ship comes in, we're going to Sydney. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, ducky. <laughs> um, so that was that was kind of I think what the the um, the plan was. We just headed south. They didn't know where they were going, so we basically just headed south. Wow. It was amazing. So finally, yeah. How do you think that that uncertainty though um, informed? what you then yeah. went on and did in life and, and, and just the choices you made. Did it make you determined to develop um, your own security? Yes, absolutely. And when we arrived in, finally arrived in Canberra, um, you know, my mum and my grand got, you know, three jobs each, uh, equally, literally. Um, mm. uh, my mother worked here at the ANU actually for quite a long time. And uh, my grandmother worked as a bookkeeper, took in ironing. Uh, my mother worked at the, uh, after hours at the Dixon Library. Um, you know, just we worked. We were a family that worked. So work and 
and, you know, achievement went hand in hand. The other thing, and this is why I think my mother was so... Uh, so influential. She had only ever done up to, um, you know, year 10, the equivalent of year 10 when she um, finished school. Um, she took herself back and did her HSC and then she studied part-time here at ANU and did a, um, a degree in political science and, you know, topped every unit that she did. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that um, was one really big thing. I can still remember one day saying to her, oh, I'm not so sure I want to go to uni, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, get married and have kids. And she rarely got angry with me, but this time she just went white (laughs) and said, let me tell you, you are going to university. (laughs) And, you know, and it is, it's about security. So, yeah. Did, Did that kind of background, though, make you feel that you needed to build your own security absolutely your absolutely uh, yep yeah, it's uh it's one of those key things i think and it's partly i suppose why i i, I look at uh, leadership it is you know maybe it is a bit of control freak but it is it is that that thing about if you want something then you have to be absolutely prepared to model it yourself and do it yourself um to lead others but but you know, that's that's where the greater sense of, yeah, security comes from, I'd say. Trish, I heard you say once in a conversation that I was part of uh, that was talking about, in, in very general terms, about privilege and entitlement and opportunity. And I was really surprised to hear you say that you were the product of, of equal opportunity or equal opportunities. Mm. What did you mean? Um, I guess that was that was um, well a, a number of ones. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to go to university if it hadn't been for the free education of the Whitlam era. So thank you. I thank Gough Whitlam every day. Um, uh, so that was that was you know um, an opportunity. But in terms of equal opportunity by gender, um, I had some pretty fantastic mentors early on in the public service who really took this took um, gender equality uh, seriously and that was important particularly being in the sort of economics profession being in um, government in in finance portfolio or before that employment portfolio and uh, those you know there weren't many men uh, sorry there weren't many women in leadership positions in those organizations and it was through <clears throat> the support from a number of um, uh, secretaries of uh, those departments uh, where they really fostered a sense of of uh, we need to we need to make a change here and this is going back to the early 80s mid mid 80s and mm. so on and you know the amount of organisational support that I got, uh, particularly as um, a young, uh, well, as a you know very young SES officer, um, senior executive service officer, uh, when I was in my early thirties, I had young children, and uh, you know I got a lot of assistance to to be an SES officer in Department of Finance with young children, as in three under five. So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was terrific. So there are some real highlights in terms of, I think, how how I've been given some, yeah, some real gifts, I think. Mm. 
Well, gifts and opportunities, but also, you know, my goodness me, haven't you um, haven't you honoured that by the work that you're doing now and working so hard at at policy reform mm. uh, to to support other women? But before we even get onto that, just just coming back to your your earlier work, when, for example, you were the head of the Department of Finance office um, at the Australian Embassy in Washington, you had to um, uh, represent Australia. On mm-hmm. a number of occasions, at, at at what point did did you find yourself feeling that you were um, comfortable doing that sort of work, and and in fact taking on that leadership kind of role? Did it happen gradually, or did you have to talk yourself into it? How did it work? Mm. Um, it uh, no, it's pretty much once you arrive in Washington, then you pick up the mantle from the person who had been there before, and uh, they'd never had a, a woman in the job uh, until I, I went there, and so it was it was bizarre because most of the appointments that were in my diary when I first arrived there, and they said, oh well, you've got to meet you know so and so from the Bookings Institute, and they're going to take you through what uh, the conference the following week will be about, but oh, it's at this club downtown and all this. Sort of thing and very, very much the the very masculine blokey club type type of uh, way of engaging with a lot of the stakeholders that I had to engage with. So I had to kind of delicately dismantle that uh, environment so that I could I could actually do, do that. that? <laughs> I would just oh. say I have young children. I have to go home. <laughs> so it was. It was about um, making coffee, coffee dates, um, doing doing things like that instead of long boozy lunches, and because I'm just not into that. <laughs> um, but did, but Trish, did you ever feel though that that might be disadvantaging? Yes, you yes, because absolutely. you were you were asking yeah. them to do it to behave differently too, effectively yes, in the engagement. That's right. Uh, it it did. Well, did it worry? Did it worry you that you might actually somehow you know? lose that position or be be um you know talked down because you wanted to do it differently oh goodness yes absolutely um i got lots of gratuitous advice from older men in the embassy that uh, you know i'd really have to <clears throat> kind of play the game properly um uh, otherwise i wasn't going to be effective and i just i couldn't there was no way i could do that uh so but did it did it worry you that yeah, you might actually oh, enormously, be you know, jeopardizing your position enormously but and you know again that was just not something I I would countenance I couldn't I couldn't operate that way so I certainly didn't want to start that way <laughs> um, yeah did you have a partner um, back at the house oh yes I did could yeah. could could actually take on the role of being primary carer yes it was very interesting though because um, my husband uh, at the time was. Um, uh, had been a, a CEO with a lobbying group here in Canberra, and uh, so he'd he'd uh, resigned to come uh, uh, to Washington. So, for the first uh, six to eight months, it was it was pretty torrid for him. He felt like he'd kind of, as he used to say, slid off the wall and uh, didn't quite know where to put himself. So, um, it if it was important, I think, to to uh, share in 
parenting, even though I was going out to work every day and he was staying home minding the kids and doing the school run, um, which he did a brilliant job of. I think it was important that I I didn't go the whole hog and, and you know, go out for lots of dinners and do all those sorts of things too. <laughs> but it's just not my style. It's really not my style. I think that's fundamentally um, the, the reason I didn't do that. But it did worry me because um, I got so much advice, as I say, that, that this was just critical. But I, uh, I, um, I, I turned it around actually. And uh, well, you yeah. did. I mean, you obviously, you know, you you did turn it around because you just continued to go from success to success. So you know, it didn't do you a damage that you insisted on doing it differently. Yeah, which is a, a leadership lesson in itself, isn't it? It is. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Trish Bergen speaking with me, Virginia Hausiger, on Broad Talk. And this is our first series on leadership. It's all about leaders, by leaders and for leaders. And we're just going to take a short break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Trish, moving on to, and I'm leaping right forward here, but uh, when you were the head of the Office uh, for Women in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is when you first came to to my attention, um, because I had just set up the fifty fifty by twenty thirty foundation, and I was very eager to uh, to engage with you and to 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 work in partnership with the Office for Women. And uh, I know that you you did some really tough work during that period. It mm. was it was it was pretty difficult. Um, the office itself, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily supported as much as it should have been from from government uh, or the prime minister or prime ministers um, at at the time. And I know there was a time when uh, Australia was under uh, uh, or, or copping quite a bit of flack. Um, over its 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 performance um, in uh, international treaties mm. uh, around gender equality, etc., and our our rankings in the global uh, gender rankings were falling, and mind you, continued to fall. Um, but you had to at one point represent Australia in Geneva, 
um, at one of those really tough UN uh, hearings. Uh, it was the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW as we call it, and you had to represent Australia and answer some really, really tough questions mm. about why Australia was performing badly. And I remember as a journalist, uh, well, I was just out of journalism at the time, but but as a journalist with my journalist radar on watching this and listening and thinking, oh, my gosh, that's really awful. Um can you tell us a little bit about that how, and, and how you coped? I'm still in trauma counselling, but I wasn't mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, oh, goodness. that uh, It was like Senate estimates on steroids and uh, it, was, <laughs> it was six and a half hours um, of being questioned through an interpreter by a room full of uh, committee members who come from all over the – from all the UN, 193 UN uh, countries not well, not 193 of them, but from the whole membership, mm. uh, they uh, fire about 10 to 15 questions to you at the one time. Uh, I had a team of a delegation of 12 people that uh, we were using WhatsApp on our on our um, iPads mm. to to say, okay, you know, Prue, you take this, um, Jim, you take that, um, <laughs> Chantel, you take that. Mm. Uh, so it was it was. It was extraordinary, um, and ex- I, I, yes, it, I think. I mean, just the, the event itself, but in terms of the actual um, facing the committee, uh, the committee was very hostile towards Australia. Uh, they, um, uh, the Australia had not appeared at its um, regular briefing four years before, so it was eight years between our appearances, and um, our report the previous. F- period had been two years late. So I was determined that we would get our report in on time and that we would attend and, you know, give a a good account of ourselves. And essentially... Trish, can I I just jump in there though, but I I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory of it at the time was that the the CEDAW committee had good reason to be tough on Australia for those lateness reasons, but also that Australia wasn't performing well Absolutely. and really had no good reason, no good explanation yeah. as to why other than politics. Is that, is that yeah, fair? Yeah, that's fair. And uh, it, the, the entire um, – if you boiled down all of the questions, they came down to how is it that a country as rich as Australia, um, as peaceful as Australia, is – doing so very poorly in terms of gender equality and uh, reducing discrimination against women. And and literally that's what if if you took every question that's that's uh, really where it came down to, and and in particular the intersectional um, uh, you know sort of where we'd fallen down with uh, women in of uh, with a disability, um, oh, and certainly our record with um, our Indigenous uh, First Nations women, their record in terms of uh, higher incarceration rates, obviously poverty, health, uh, poorer health outcomes, uh, you name it. So mm. so mm. really that was the thing they could not understand and could not understand and so they would look for things and say well why is it that the Australia I think it was just after Australia had signed some significant um, uh, deals in terms of uh, military weaponry um, and so on and they said how is it that Australia has become the 10th largest arms dealer but yet it has this record in terms of gender Mm -hmm. equality across all of those um, intersections. So it was it was grueling. It was a grilling, and you had to, in representing Australia, and therefore obviously representing the Australian government, you had to um, 
come up with some decent responses, mm. which I be, I'm, I'm guessing in your heart of hearts you didn't feel particularly good about. How do you do that? Oh, look, it is such a thin line, I think, um, that you have to tread because uh, I, you know, again, I would, I would not say something that was not true. Uh, however, as a professional public servant, uh, you support the government of the day. And so the way... I guess, and you know, certainly anybody who's uh, experienced uh, Senate estimates would know that a lot of the time, the only answer can be uh, that's government's policy. Government policy, um, and and in terms of them asking, you know, did I agree with that? It's not for me to say. As a professional public servant, it is not for me mm. to say. Um, it it's about how you can point to where you are trying to shift the dial. And where efforts are being made, um, and uh, but at the end of the day, sometimes it is it is simply saying that is government policy. Um, that is up to the elected officials of the day. It's not up to me as a public servant to um, to you know I, I don't have the ability to decide that. Now that that's really tough, and I guess this is where you really have to wear your leadership hat very tall. I suppose yes. Um, and and it tests your leadership capabilities, <laughs> I guess, too. Did you come away from that um, having second thoughts about your your leadership role, or was it just a matter of look, I've got to dust myself off and um, get back up and get on with it? I think it certainly uh, it did have quite an effect on me. Um, and probably resulted in me deciding uh, before the last election that uh, I needed to find a role where I could actually use my own voice. It, it is incredibly important in those leadership roles to be a truly good leader in those in those organisations where you have uh, difficult policy and difficult. Um, it, well, you know, it is. It's just a. It is a tough, tough uh, area when it doesn't accord with your ideas of what is good policy. It's it's important that you stay both authentic in the sense that you you always look for to be a professional public servant first. Uh, but you recognise that it, it uh, there are times when you're doing things that are not necessarily what you would choose to do. You have to be really clear with your with your team that first and foremost we are there to serve the government of the day because if you start to if you start to I don't know be be very critical of the government say behind you know to to your team you, you just mm. you 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 really make it hard for people to actually do their best work um, because mm. you're sending them such mixed messages. So, so you have to be all about being absolutely professional. So, uh, I think that's that's the way I I worked in that environment, um, because you know successfully to reform, uh, drive reform in the office and uh, improve our our policy reach, our um, our evidence, uh, our ability to use um, data and analysis to support to support argument, and it really it was really about doing that well. Um, rather than judging ourselves by the the policy outcome, Trish, you mentioned there the ability to have your own voice, mm. and it's absolutely 
fantastic to see you in the role that you're in now as co-director of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation. Um, and you share that position uh, with Professor Kim Rubenstein. And you, the two of you are, are very, very different people, clearly, mm. but you, you, you share it so beautifully. And speaking of voice, it was just uh, wonderful to see how both of you responded to uh, when the pandemic, the global pandemic hit, and it became pretty clear that the impact on women was uh, not just profound, but being overlooked by the Australian government. Both you and Kim penned an op-ed for Broad Agenda, uh, which which I uh, am chief editor for, so disclaimer there, but it was also run in the Canberra Times and got quite a, quite a, a big um, uh, traction through mainstream media. But you penned a, a really interesting piece um, saying that leadership during crisis must be 50-50 and you pulled no punches in getting stuck into the government for its lack of uh, gender diversity and gender equality in leadership positions. Did that feel like a bold thing to do? Oh, yes, it did. <laughs> oh, yes, it <laughs> she did. She says with relish. <laughs> <laughs> but but incredibly, um, yeah, incredibly liberating in the sense that I think I think it's so important uh, to be able to um, point out some of these uh, gaps, these massive gaps that are um, obvious in terms of the – uh, the leadership voices that are at the table, because you know during the um, uh, during the early stages of the pandemic, some of the decisions that were being made were just extraordinary, um, and and some of them have been absolutely wonderfully extraordinary, like the the decision to move to f- free childcare. So so those sorts of things have been amazing, but there've also been some some really odd uh, decisions uh, most recently, uh, in particular the very first industry to uh, have uh, assistance rolled back from the assistance provided during the pandemic um, has been the childcare industry, which just uh, I, I don't understand at all. But it does feel good to have a voice and I think it's important to feel, uh, well, to, to be a force for change and coming back to our very uh, the early part of our discussion, it, it's it's what drives me. It's it's wanting to make a difference in the direction that I think is important. I think, um, well, certainly uh, childcare is an area that is is um, a policy, a bit of a policy battlefield for the government at the moment. And I don't think it's really sorted out its its views in terms of whether it should be a just about childcare, i.e., what happens to children. Children when when parents go to work, or is it that? But it's also about early learning and the investment that we're making in our future population. Trish, I'm going to just broaden um, our discussion out a little bit to the, a, a global view of the the pandemic, uh, in particular at leadership. It's been fascinating to watch how globally media. <clears throat> Around the world, particularly some of the you know big mainstream media mastheads have got very excited about women's leadership, and there's been headline after headline about um, you know female leaders being so much more successful in handling COVID nineteen than the, the, the strong men, mm. um, and we all know who they are, but. Uh, in among it's, and look, it's it's fascinating too because there are only thirteen nations in the world that are headed up by women, and at least 
eight of them are constantly being uh, nominated as as among the best in the world for the way they've handled the pandemic. And, you know, Germany being a standout, New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, of course, being a great standout, and Taiwan, Norway, Iceland, Finland, um, Norman, uh, Norway and Denmark. Now, it's interesting for from an Australian perspective looking out and, and seeing this happen and the gushingness we hear, <laughs> particularly about Jacinda Ardern and her her style of leadership, does this make you feel that there is a a new leadership, or at least an appreciation of a new leadership beginning to emerge more broadly? Well, I guess I'm I'm always an optimist, so I would love <laughs> to think that that is the case. <laughs> I. Uh, I really do feel that that it's not just one or two, and the fact, as you say, as you point out, that uh, uh, including a lot of the the Nordic uh, female leaders too, um, and as you say, Taiwan, that these these leaders um, are not just the singular one person. Oh, that's just you know that person. It's a it's starting to get to have uh, a, a, you know a bit of a. Uh, momentum, I guess, because it's not just one or two people; it's it's more than that. So I I am hopeful that this this is indicating a much um, uh, well a bit of a shift towards a more feminine style of leadership that or a leadership style that includes. Is it a feminine? St- yeah, is it a feminine style though? That's an interesting yeah I sh- uh, I, way of describing it. Yeah, um, I was just uh, hearing myself say that and thinking to myself, <laughs> what do I mean by that? But I, I guess it's it's bringing some of those um, those attributes that. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. Years and years ago, I, as a, an early leader in the public in the Australian public service, uh, uh, working in, as I said, Department of Finance, um, I was told by my boss. He said, "Oh, you're just too nice. You're just too nice. You go and talk to people. You, um, <laughs> you know, you listen to them, and you know, you 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 go back to them, and, and all this sort of thing." And he said, "You just got oh, to never make a leader. Yeah, you're way that's too right. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> way too nice. And literally, that was my performance feedback. Was your way too nice. And yet I could point to the uh, the difficult conversations I'd had with uh, staff about performance and moved them on, done all sorts of things. And I think the feminine style of leadership is, is um, when I think of that, it's bringing a, a more uh, collaborative tone, a, a way of working through issues, um, a way of Bringing, bringing a bit more humanity to to the discussion and understanding of the whole person that you're dealing with rather than uh, rather than just um, a staff member or in the case of Jacinda Ardern, the way she talks to people in you know on her Facebook her, her, it's almost like she's tucking the nation into bed um, <laughs> and I don't mean that in a um, I know that could sound uh, I don't know what it could sound but it sounds a bit soppy or something but it it, it it really is quite personal, and and that comes mm. back to what I think uh, really good leadership is. It's it's a social construct. It's a social activity. It happens between people. It can't just happen in terms of dollars and cents and and uh, things like that. It has to be set in the context of I understand you. I uh, and I want you to understand me and where I'm coming from. 
Uh, I well, think. it's interesting that, that you, you mentioned the dollars and cents there because, I mean, of course, you're an economist, so you, you sort of come from that background. But one of the things that's been said during this pandemic and the, the Australian government's response is that uh, by women is that the focus has been so much on the economy and, mm. and the, the bottom line response. And whilst, of course, that is, you know, incredibly um, pivotal to, you know, whether or not Australia – uh, pulls out of this okay it's the it's the um the other side of uh the the impact the human side the personal um emotional costs mm. the um the, the the nervousness and anxiety that people are experiencing sometimes without even knowing um that they are uh, that has been kind of uh, glossed over or mm, missed missing. somehow mm, in our yeah. national response. And it, it's very interesting that uh, Helen Clark, the former uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, has said about um, some of this sort of so-called new leadership that's emerging among women leaders and particularly Jacinda Ardern in her own country. She's, Helen Clark says that, you know, what really differentiates these women is is the – is that firstly and, and foremost they're putting empathy right out front mm. and and the health and human security uh, of their citizens first and foremost and, and treating that before they're treating the, the nation as, you know, an economic unit as such. Um, and I, I thought that was really quite true um, because we're all a bit tired of being treated as just economic units That's and right. actual human beings. My goodness, yes. I, I uh, always remember uh, after he'd been president, uh, uh, Barack Obama saying that one of the roles of uh, the president of the United States, particularly in a time of crisis, is to be the human comforter. To be mm-hmm. that that uh, mm-hmm. that or chief comforter, I think he called himself, um, or called the role. And that ability to empathise, to go out and empathise uh, with, with people in their suffering um, and not not treat them as you say as um, an economic unit that's not working or has uh, uh, lost their job or their house or, or whatever it is mm. but actually to to help hold the nation's um, emotional response and help people yeah. to feel safe emotionally mm. yeah and to display you know a human response I've got to say I um, I, I became a little bit obsessed with watching Jacinda Ardern's um, <laughs> Facebook uh, posts you know sometimes quite late at night after she'd put her, her little toddler to bed and there was one where I, I just thought it was so gorgeous she was sitting in a room and she was talking and she basically sort of got on Facebook and did this sort of live streaming chat where she was speaking to whoever was there and said look I just want to check in with you all and it was it was like well, for me, it felt like, you know, watching your sister sort of saying, oh, just ringing up to see how you're going. Hmm. It was a bit like that. But what was really lovely was um, she started getting questions fed in and uh, people were saying to her, oh, you look really tired. And she said, yeah, I probably am really tired. But then she said, but the lighting in this room is not very good. And then she started swinging her phone around to show everyone the room. And they said, oh, take a look at this lounge suite. It's really, really cool. And it was an old 
cane lounge suite, the sort of thing that, I don't know, my parents used to have in their 70s. And she said, take a look at this chair. I just love this chair. And I just thought, how very real is that? Here we are in the middle of a a global crisis, basically a country lockdown, and she's responding to that and she's, you know, anxious about it just like everyone else. But she was still able to say, I have a look at this chair. It's really cool. I really (laughs) love this chair. Uh, It was just just so real. And I just thought, gosh, it's uh, Mm. it's so... In many respects, it's so refreshing to yeah. see a leader who can both lead and be tough and 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 rigorous, but also be really unafraid to be real and, and yeah. show herself. Yeah. It's just so unusual, isn't it? It is, and I think that's that's um, that is the absolute essence of leadership is that is that a humanness, the ability to display the fact that you're human, um, you know, and that goes for making mistakes and we all make mistakes and, uh, you know, fessing up to people and literally the power of standing in front of, let me tell you, uh, power of standing in front of a group mm-hmm. of people and saying that you're leading for and you're responsible for and saying, um, I messed up uh, or I didn't see mm. that coming or whatever it might mm. be. Is it just it it you know it just really gives you I suppose authenticity in in others' eyes um, because you are genuinely you're not hiding from from your mistakes you're not trying to shift them to others you're you're a human being and you can say look I did all of these things for that reason but uh, but clearly I didn't have all the information or I hadn't got all the information mm. and it just it, it's quite it's quite binding in the sense of uh, not binding it's unifying um, in mm. in the sense that it, it allows people to see themselves in you and uh, as long as you're not doing it all, every second day <laughs> but um, but uh, you know carrying the can and particularly carrying the can for the organisation uh, mm. publicly or up the line or whatever is is absolutely critical. And that sort of very authentic honesty too is something that I think uh, you know a lot of leaders fail to understand. Citizens, the public, uh, an audience. I say this is a, you know a former television broadcaster over many mm. decades. Uh, people can be very forgiving if you are honest. Mm, I agree. Uh, you know if you if you do fess up, um, they can be very forgiving, very understanding. But mm. they just need to know. Yeah, you know they need to be right. told the truth. And uh, as I used to always say to my um, ABC colleagues, you know the audience has a great radar for bullshit. Oh they, yeah. they, You know that <laughs> they they know when they're being fed um, PR. Mm. Now, look, before we wind up, and Trish, you know, I, I could go on talking to you for hours, but before we do wind up, there are two things that I do ask um, of leaders uh, in this series. One is about ambition, we'll come to that, but the other is about failure. Mm. Have you have you failed? And if so, what did you learn from that? Hmm. Oh, goodness me, failure. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. I'm just trying to think um, <laughs> which which failure to sort of think about, really. Um, I guess... <laughs> well, look, while, while you clock that over in your mind, I'll, I'll just add to that, that I always say when I'm often asked to, to speak to students and or, or groups of young women about career and c- career success, et cetera, and I always say, you know, you cannot have, you cannot possibly have a great career without failure. You know, you, you, it, there is no such thing as an upward trajectory forever. You know, you have to roll, ro- ride a roller coaster if you're really going to have an exciting and great career. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think failure is part of it. But yeah, have you have you experienced a particular failure that you've, you've learned from? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, 
Uh, I, I think I think my my two great failures probably came from uh, working in an area where there was a complete clash of values and not being able to to keep my mouth shut I think <laughs> in those areas um, and and I think that's where I learned about alignment and how you have to work somewhere where you can be yourself and bring your whole self to work um, because if you can't you become rogue and you are not effective and you're not a good leader. Um, so for me, my failure has been thinking that I could contort myself into into um, whatever culture or whatever uh, organisation I needed to be with. And largely I can, and I think most of us can, but but it really taught me that when the the um, the, the value side of things is not is funda- fundamentally misaligned, uh, there is no way that you can you can be an effective leader so that's that's probably what I learned most <laughs> I think that that's fascinating and there's a, there's a very very good lesson in that for for all of us just lastly um, Trish what would you tell your teenage self now about ambition mm. and your future pathway into into leadership oh given what you know? gosh uh, Get rid of the imposter syndrome earlier. <laughs> um, look, and I don't say I've, I've completely nobbled that one, but uh, I think I carried with me such a, a sense of, oh, gosh, I'm an imposter here. Everybody else is smarter than me. Everybody else is, you know, all of these things. And and quite honestly, that wasn't the case. So uh, and, and that held me back. And I think I see a lot of, uh, a lot of women um, – refreshingly not so many uh, young women i'm seeing some just such a beautiful wonderful strong assertive authentic group of young women coming through particularly in the public service at the moment um but elsewhere you know across uh, across society um so to me if i could have said to myself ah oh, relax <laughs> just be yourself keep going mm. and and Go for it. Uh, I think I, I honestly used to find 110 reasons not to not to apply for a leadership position, um, rather than than apply for it. Um, other than by the end of the day, I I just thought, damn it, I want to do this. <laughs> so, but it, it often took me a long time to to admit to that. Hmm. Well, on that note, um, I'm going to close, but I think that's a, a really good way to close too because what, what great advice. Just just go for it. Just, just go, go for it. It. Yeah. it all works out in the end anyway. Yep. Uh, Trish, <laughs> oh, <beautifully>. it has <laughs> been, it's been such a delight to talk to you and, as I said, we could talk for hours, but uh, I really appreciate you sharing and so honestly too um, your story and uh, thank you once again. My pleasure. Thank you. So the old imposter syndrome rears its head again. I'm always staggered at how often people in senior roles privately admit to suffering from imposter syndrome. I've heard this so many times from highly accomplished and outwardly confident women. But guess what? I've only ever heard it from a man once. Which makes me wonder if it afflicts women more than men. What do you think? Have you found strategies to cope with imposter syndrome? I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. 
You can connect with me on Twitter at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S, or find me on Facebook at Broad Talk, all one word. And join the Broad Talk Roundtable group where you can check in with any comments or questions you'd like to share. There's always a seat for you at the Broad Talk Roundtable. Now, I'm taking a few weeks break and we'll be back with a new series of Broad Talk very soon, which I'm super excited about. So please keep a lookout. And thanks to the exceptional leaders we've spoken to over the course of this series for making the time to share their insights. I hope you've found them illuminating and helpful. I know I certainly have. And thanks to you, dear listener, for your support and encouragement. It's really meant a lot to me and the Broad Talk team. We love the fact that you're enjoying the series. Finally, thanks to the world's best podcast producer ever, Martin Pierce, a master whiz, without whom Broad Talk would never have made it into the world of pods. So until we meet again, thanks for your company, Broad Chatters, and keep talking. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.